the buyer can come along and meet the seller, talk about the business, learn about the business, become interested in the business. But then if the information isn't available and packaged properly to satisfy their need for what they want to know initially, then you can actually turn the buyer off. It would be akin to a car dealer, you know, having a car on their lot and you go on the lot and you say, how much is that blue car? I really like it. And they say, well, you know, you'll have to come back next week to find out what the price is. And we also don't know what any of the specs or mileage or what kind of stereo it comes with. A car dealer just wouldn't do that, but small business people do it all the time. You are now tuned in to the Macy Muse Unplugged, a pop-up podcast variety show helping consultants along their journey to greatness with your host, management consultant, author, and blogger, Christy Lindor. Hey, my go-getters. Welcome to the Macy Muse Unplugged podcast show. I'm your host, Christy Lindor, thrilled to be bringing you episode 45, and today we are doing a Quick Wins episode. If this is your first time tuning in, Quick Wins are when I have the opportunity to connect with individuals discussing products, ideas, or services to really help round out your consulting toolkit. Today's guest, we've got super cool, I call this a special edition go-getters, we've got David Barnett on today's show. A little bit about David. David is actually a seasoned consultant. He's an author, a speaker, and he's a former business broker. And I asked David to join us on today's show to really talk about kind of the buying and selling of businesses. So it's a topic that, you know, I hear a lot of consultants talk about, you know, just from an M&A perspective, I think when at least the consultants that I know and work with, they may do a lot of what's called, you know, kind of mergers and acquisition transactional types of work. What David is describing and what he'll share on today's show is for those go-getters out there that may be already entrepreneurs, independent freelancers, maybe wanting to step their entrepreneurial consulting game up and scale and be thinking about buying a consulting firm or go-getters out there that currently have their own boutique firm and maybe thinking about selling it off. David really provides really cool insights and David has a really unique position he plays. He acts as a consultant for individuals that are seeking to buy a business and really just giving people kind of the ins and out of, uh, you know, the kind of the business brokerage and, you know, commercial debt structuring, different kind of elements of buying and selling businesses. But in today's episode in Quick Wins, David is going to really unpack what do you look for, you know, when you're buying a business, selling it, managing small businesses, you know, the complexity of it. You know, I think sometimes people don't realize how complex it is to buy and sell what he calls the main street businesses. So things like gas stations and laundromats. And he talks about kind of that element, but he also talks about where he sees business buying and selling, where you see that headed, what are some of the trends out there, and what are some things that you should consider if you are really looking to be in this space. I thought it was really unique. I'm so excited got a chance to talk to David, and I hope you will enjoy my conversation with him. Also, go-getters, I just wanted to do a quick recap of my experience as now I'm officially a TEDx speaker. 
last weekend, I had the utmost pleasure of hitting the TEDx stage in Zaragoza, Spain, where I talked about how to create thriving organizational cultures. And my talk is called Why Great People Quit Good Jobs and Go-Getters. It was so surreal to not only be on the stage, but you know, the journey it took to get there has been pretty exciting. And I can't wait to share it. I mentioned to you all, I do plan on doing an episode just on TEDx. And I want to gather some of my peers in this space to really talk about go-getters. If you're interested in doing TEDx talks or, or hitting the TED stage yourself and want more information, even attending a TED event. So before I, you know, I kind of went down the journey of my TEDx journey, I actually attended a TED talk event last year because I wanted to just get more insight. So you kind of see what is the final outcome on like the YouTube videos and if you go to the TED.com website and that's pretty cool. But I personally, I you know, being the true consultant, I wanted to get kind of more of the real deal insight. So I actually volunteered for a TEDx Bacon Street event that was held last year. And I learned so much. It was such an inspiring place to be. And it was just so amazing. You know, I really felt like I got a lot from that. So, you know, we'll talk about TED and TEDx talks in the future. And I look forward to sharing that information with you. So with that, let's get started. So David, how are you doing? Welcome to the Macy Muse. I'm plugged. Hey, I'm doing well. I'm really happy that you invited me on the show. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us. David is doing some really cool things in the world of transactions. So when we think about mergers and acquisitions, and he's in the space, he's living the space. So I feel like this is going to be a really informative conversation to just kind of hear a little bit more about that world. So maybe David, before we kick off, maybe we can start if you give yourself like an introduction to the go-getters of the Mises Unplugged. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I've always been an entrepreneur. I'm from Canada. And so, you know, had a business, the requisite teenage boy business of shoveling snow from his neighbor's driveways. And, you know, then built upon that with paper routes and different things. And I ended up going to business school because I thought that I would become a businessman if I got a business degree. And it was only, I think, in my third year there that I realized I was being actually turned into a Fortune 500 bureaucrat, you know, one of those middle managers in the giant machine of one of these big enterprises. And when I got out, I had the really great fortune. It was the mid-90s. I got out and actually got a job in sales with a Yellow Pages publisher. And what was so great is that, of course, the Yellow Pages is like, you know, at, at one time, it was the place for local businesses to be advertising. Back in those days, if you typed plumber into Google, you would get some guy in California. They hadn't figured out how to do local searching. And so the Yellow Pages was really important for all the mom and pop and what I'll call Main Street businesses, right? The local businesses in every community. And so I had a chance to go out and meet the people who owned them and ran them to find out how they ran their businesses, how they made money, and what kind of people they wanted to listen to when the phone rang. Like, who did they want to be on the phone? And so I learned a ton about different kinds of business models and, and everything. But by 2005, the writing was on the wall. I knew that, you know, in 10 years' time, there likely wasn't going to be as great an opportunity in publishing phone books as there had been because of the internet and everything. So I started looking for new opportunities. And I actually found a franchise that I wanted to buy. And when I approached that company, they told me that the market I was in was too small. And so I did what any good entrepreneur would do is, is I just ripped off their business model and, and did my own thing and tried to copy them as closely as I could. 
about a year and a half into it, decided that I really didn't enjoy the business. I really preferred to work with business owners. And so I sold that company. That was the first transaction I had ever did selling a business. And I did it rather naively. I didn't really know any of the stuff that I know now. And I was really fortunate that I did a deal with a buyer who is like a real upstanding guy because I certainly could have been taken advantage of in that deal and I wasn't. It worked out exactly the way it was supposed to. And so my next step was to get into brokering commercial debt and financing. So I started a company that would help business owners get loans, operating and capital leases on equipment, factoring facilities, which is the sale of accounts receivable to turn them into cash. And so I was working in this domain, helping people in business get money. And I kept finding people who were coming to me looking for money to acquire businesses that were already running. And one of the things that struck me is that in almost every case, the people seemed to be working with people who had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea how to put the deal together. And so we're talking bad stuff like real estate agents who would write up the purchase of a business on a contract designed to buy a house, right? And so it didn't speak to operating capital. It didn't speak to inventory. It didn't speak to employees. I would get calls from bankers who would say, you know, I've got this couple, they're trying to buy a little corner store. They need financing, but they need more than that. They need help to get this thing put together properly. And so I helped people to the best of my ability. And just so happens that I ran into the financial crisis from you know 08, 09, and almost half the companies, Christy, that I was using as a source of capital for my clients went under in that crisis. And so my deal pipeline shriveled up because my suppliers of money went away and I knew that I had to pivot myself. And so I decided that I would go into the world of business brokerage. And so I signed up with a large international brand of business brokers, a franchise brand, and I chose them because they gave me access to training. And over a two-year period, I spent three weeks going to sessions where I attended classes and then finally I wrote an exam. And I became one of the first people in my market to actually obtain a certification in buying and selling what we'll call Main Street businesses. So typically businesses with sales under $10 million. And I worked in that industry for three years. In three years, I sold 36 companies for other people. And business brokerage is an amazing business. And I really loved it because it held for me all of the problem-solving requirements of doing sophisticated financial deals. But at the same time, you had to manage people and their feelings because a lot of the times there were a lot of emotions involved in these family businesses that had been grown for decades that were suddenly changing hands. And in a lot of ways, it was one of the worst businesses I've ever been in because business brokers typically they represent a seller, they sign the business up to be sold, and they only get paid when they sell the business. And one of the first businesses I ever signed up was a fried chicken restaurant franchise, which was also the very last business that I sold before I got out. So that file was on my desk for three years. And even though my commission on that deal was probably, it was over $50,000, I worked for three years to get that $50,000. And so as a business broker, I had these big windfall payments coming in, but then I couldn't spend the money because I was never certain about when the next one would come in. And so it was this up and down and up and down of cash flow. And eventually I decided I needed to get out of that industry. And so I left at the end of 2011 and left the industry altogether. And you know, the worst thing that can ever happen to an entrepreneur happened to me, Christy. I got a job. 
So I started to work for a large banking, multinational banking concern, and I covered the Atlantic region of Canada, working with their clients. And it was after a few months of being with them that my phone started to ring. And people would call me and they would say, you know, I've got a business I want to sell and I've heard that you're the guy who can help me. And and I would have to excuse myself and say, you know, I'm not in that field anymore. You know, I can't help you anymore. I won't be able to help you. And the calls kept coming. And then this one particular guy named Bob called me up and he said, Dave, he said, I've found a business I want to buy and I've spoken to my lawyer and I've spoken to my accountant and they both tell me where I need to end up in this deal but neither of them seems to be able to give me very good guidance in how to negotiate it. And you know they know their part, but they don't seem to be able to navigate me through this. And then so I said to Bob, I said, you know, I have the knowledge and the experience to get you through this, but I'm not a business broker anymore. And I have a full-time job during the day. So Bob, if you want my help, I'm going to have to charge you like a consultant would. I'll have to charge you an hourly fee, I guess. And I can only meet with you on evenings or weekends. And I just paused and waited and waited and waited on the phone while, as the seconds ticked by. And then, you know, suddenly Bob said, well, so then you can meet me Saturday at nine? And I said, yeah, I can meet you Saturday at nine. And that was my very first consulting client in the world of Main Street business transactions. And it built from that point over the next two years to the point where my clients on the side were actually bringing me more revenue than my job. That is such a great story. It's so organic how it all kind of came together. It feels like it you had like a full circle type of journey. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, there were different parts of that journey that were painful, but I realized in looking back that if I hadn't gone through each of those dips, it never would have led me to the next plateau. Absolutely. So thanks for sharing your career journey. Maybe we can do, David, if you can take us a step back and maybe just break down kind of the real high level, just kind of a day in the life of a business transaction, like what happens and what's your role and why would someone seek out a consultant like yourself? Yeah, sure. So you mentioned M&A a couple of times and in in the world of M&A transactions where we typically use those initials, mergers and acquisitions, we're usually talking about bigger companies with lots of professional management and maybe even publicly traded companies where there's a real high standard of how things are done, the way the books are kept and all this kind of thing. In the world of Main Street business, we're typically talking about small business and there's two very important factors at play. Number one, I guess we'll genuinely call it a little bit of ignorance. So a lot of the people who own and run these smaller businesses, they know their trade and their industry, but they're not professionals at running businesses. Okay. So there are certain things that happen in those businesses that are not nefarious or anyone's fault. It's just because somebody doesn't know exactly what they're doing or how to do things the best way. The second thing that happens in the world of small business is because the owners and managers are typically the same people and because they usually own the entire organization, they're free to manage it in a way that enhances their lifestyle rather than maximizing cash flow to shareholders. So let me give you an example. You know, the small business owner will quickly realize that he shouldn't personally have a cell phone, right? Because then he's got to take money out of his entity. He's got to pay personal tax on that money. And then he's got to take that money that's been taxed and he's got to pay the cell phone company. He's got to pay sales tax on that. It's much smarter and cheaper to have the company pay for the cell phone, right? And so small business people will try to take personal expenses and put them into the business whenever they can. But then they'll quickly realize 
then maybe the teenage daughter should also have a company phone and the spouse should have a company gas card. And we go on from there. And so while these things are technically not correct, they're not the way you're supposed to properly manage a business, and they are quite specifically ways that people cheat on their taxes, that business, it can still be a valuable, profitable business, even though the bottom line says that it's not making the profit that it really is. So a big part of the job of looking at small, privately controlled companies is doing the normalization process, going through and examining things line by line to find out what exactly is really going on in the business and what the true net benefit is to the owner. So when we're looking at selling one of these enterprises, the very first thing we have to do is an evaluation, which includes that normalization. And the normalization follows a certain set of specific rules so that we can look at the true net benefit to the owner of the company. So when I'm working with a seller, the first thing I do is an evaluation where I come back and I let them know what the most probable selling price is and what the terms of that deal likely are, which is a very different thing from what a professional business appraiser would do because typically they're coming up with a value in terms of cash. My evaluation takes into account terms. And most small businesses, because small business financing can be difficult, are sold on terms. So there's some amount of down payment and there's some amount of money paid over time after the transaction has completed. So that's the first step is the evaluation and the setting of expectations for the seller. We then recommend an asking price. And then the next step is the packaging. So what information are we putting together so that we can make a coherent presentation to a buyer? And this is really important because the buyer can come along and meet the seller, talk about the business, learn about the business, become interested in the business. But then if the information isn't available and packaged properly to satisfy their need for what they want to know initially, then you can actually turn the buyer off. It would be akin to a car dealer, you know, having a car on their lot and you go on the lot and you say, how much is that blue car? I really like it. And they say, well, you know, you'll have to come back next week to find out what the price is. And we also don't know what any of the specs or mileage or what kind of stereo it comes with. A car dealer just wouldn't do that, but small business people do it all the time. They'll go and find someone who's interested in their business and they won't be prepared to actually have an intelligent conversation with them. So packaging is the next important thing that I do with people. Next comes the advertising. So if people find out that a business is for sale, the business can be damaged. Because if you know word gets out in the public that this business is up for sale, people can begin to be worried that the business may actually be failing, that it might be preparing to close. People might be worried that you know they're not going to be paying their bills. So all of a sudden you have a problem with suppliers not wanting to extend trade credit. Employees might be worried that the business is really failing or a new owner may not like them or that a new owner has a stepbrother who needs a job and it's going to be their job. So all of these concerns can actually cause a business to falter and to be ruined. So we have to keep it private and we have to keep it confidential. So I manage advertising programs on behalf of some of my sellers where I'll use business for sale websites, we'll post something in an anonymous fashion, and then the buyers start to make inquiries. And I filter those buyers before I introduce them to the seller. Then I coach the seller through the process until they get to the point where they need to start dealing with their attorney and their CPA who are going to finalize the contracts and the paperwork and help with the tax planning for the seller. From the buyer's side, 
I usually come on the scene once someone has discovered a business that they may want to buy and I help them analyze the deal and take a look at the information. So that means I get to look at the packages that have been put together by business owners or their advisors, such as business brokers. I'll give you a quick story. So I was helping a gentleman who is in the mid-Atlantic states and he wants to buy a commercial landscaping company and the business broker has a package which has a profit and loss statement with some of the normalizing adjustments, but they wouldn't give us the balance sheet, right? And so they're trying to show us how profitable the business is. But in a business like landscaping, number one, we have a lot of equipment. We have to see what kind of replacement of equipment's been happening over the last few years. And number two, because they sell to other companies, there's an operating capital component in there. Because typically they'll mow someone's lawn for a month and issue a bill, and that customer might take 30 to 60 days to pay the bill. So if you're going to be buying a company that needs operating capital of a couple hundred thousand dollars, that's obviously going to affect the terms and the price you're willing to pay for that business. So this is why packaging is so important. You have to anticipate what kind of questions a buyer is going to have so that you can make an intelligent presentation to them and not come across as someone who's ill-prepared and doesn't know what they're doing. The biggest risk to the sellers is that they miss what I call the reasonable buyer. And the reasonable buyer is the person who has good credit. They got money in the bank. They have retirement savings they can draw on. And they're familiar with the industry and they know what the businesses should be priced at approximately. Because if we overprice the business or if we come across as inexperienced and unknowledgeable, we can lose the very person who's likely going to be the one to buy the business. The tire kicker or the, you know, the foolish person who doesn't know what they're doing, they can agree to pay way too much for a business and the seller will think, hey, you know, I just got a great deal. I'm going to be rich now. I've sold my business. As soon as that guy gets to the bank, the banker is going to show him that he can't afford the debt to do the deal he's just agreed to. And of course, the whole thing falls apart. So, I mean, that's how I help buyers and sellers. I kind of take people through the process and what makes it different from what a business broker does is a business broker actually represents one of the parties, typically the seller, and is paid when the business is sold and that seller ends up paying a huge commission check. I work with buyers and I just bill them for the things that I do along the way, much in the same way that their accountant or their attorney would bill them for any kind of legal or accounting advice. And so, you know, in my business has a very smooth cash flow because I work for people every week. I'm issuing invoices every week. And so I'm getting paid every week and I avoid those big peaks and valleys for my own business. And from the seller's point of view, they end up paying me far less than they would a broker when they finally sell their business. And from the buyer's point of view, I can give them unbiased advice because I'm not being paid by a seller. They're engaging me to look at a deal and I can examine that deal and give them honest advice, which could, for example, be to walk away because it's not a good deal. Very intriguing process, David. You know, as you as you were saying that, I was trying to picture it. So uh, this is all new to me, and I find it fascinating. With what you do, kind of the you know, with that private transactional consulting, is it that individuals, whether it's a buyer or seller, would they still use services of a business broker, or can they just use you directly and then kind of administer the process themselves? Yeah, most of them just use me, and except for buyers. Very often, I will be engaged by a buyer who has found a business for sale with a broker, and they want my help to deal with what they're getting from the broker. 
Most okay. of my clients do not want the other party to know I'm on their team. Because if the other party were to Google my name, they would realize, hey, there's you know an expert on the other side that knows what they're doing. So basically, the principle that I'm helping, either the buyer or the seller, they'll deal with the other party and then come back to me and, and say, hey, this is what we discussed. This is what they want to do now. What do you think? And then I'll give them advice based on my experience. Got it. That's helpful. And in terms of the sales, I know when you were mentioning in the business brokerage side, you primarily dealt with transactions of mainstream companies that had sales of 10 million and under. Do you Mm -hmm. still have that type of cat on your private practice? Yeah. The way that I quantify it now is I will say sales or gross profit under 10 million, because there are certain industries where you can have very high sales, but there's an enormous cost of goods sold. So where I am, for example, here on the East coast of Canada, there are businesses like fish packing plants. They might have sales of 50 million, but you know they're spending 42 million to acquire the product right so at the end of the day they actually function much like a 10 million dollar company but they've got a really high cost of goods sold so i generally say to people if there's sales or gross profit under 10 million that's in my space once you get much further north of that there really are a whole whack of different types of advisors and advisory services that are more specialized in what I refer to as a mid-market space. Also helpful. So my next question is actually a a twofer question for for go-getters that are on either side of the fence. So one, if someone's listening to the show and and hearing your background and thinking, wow, like I never really thought about buying an existing business, it'd be great for you to share what are the benefits of buying an existing business. I like how you use the term mainstream. But on the flip side, if someone's listening to this and thinking, oh, okay, well, you know, I have a small consulting business that may be doing well, but at some point I may want to think about selling it off as my exit strategy. You know, how would they build a business that's worth buying? Yeah, sure. Sorry, Christy, it was Main Street. Oh, okay. Main Street. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so because I, and I like the term Main Street because it really paints a picture in your head. Right. The business we're thinking about, right? Like the tire shop or the, you know, accounting practice or a grocery store or, but I mean, I, I do even deal a lot with some online businesses these days, but I think that term main street sort of you picture in your mind, the business being run by a family or maybe a small group of people, maybe, maybe 20 or 30 people at the most. Right. And sort of the bread and butter businesses of our local communities. But, you know, to get to your question, I do seminars in front of live groups. And one of the things that I start my buyer seminar with is I say that it's, I make the statement that it's faster, cheaper, easier, and less risky to buy a business than to start one. And I usually get a couple of protests from, from the crowd. And then I, here's how I basically demonstrate that is I say that you need two things in order to be successful in business. You need a product or service and a proven system of delivering the product or service. And you need people that want to buy it, the customers, right? Those are the two things you need to be successful. And so when you start a new business from scratch, when you do a startup, what you don't have is any customers, and you may think that you have a product or service, but you may not really have the system yet in place. So the example that I often use is the dry cleaner. So when I go to the dry cleaner, I give them three shirts, two pairs of pants, and a jacket, right? And they give me a little slip of paper with a number. And I go back there two days later, and they give me the very same pants, shirts, and jacket. And everyone just kind of takes this for granted. 
that you're going to get the same things back. But if you think about this, you realize that my trousers went one way, the shirts went another way, and the jacket went another way. And the trousers that I dropped off got mixed in with probably a hundred other pairs of pants, right? And so my clothes get intermingled with other people's clothes. They get cleaned. And then the three shirts could be pressed by three different people in the back, right? And then miraculously, at the end of the process, all of my garments get put together, tied together with a twist tie, and put on that magical you know, curtain rod that moves when they push the button, right? And so it's more than just a machine that does dry cleaning. It's more than just some irons and some pressing machines. There's a process and a system that makes it all work together so that the business delivers the expected result every time. So when you start a new business, you may not have those things. But what you will get is you'll get noticed by competition. So if I go into a town with four dry cleaners and I open a new one, they're going to watch me. They're going to see me. They're going to want to know what I'm doing. And what most people do when they get into business, when they start a new business, is they take a page out of the Walmart management book and they cut the price. They promote on price. And what ends up happening is they start to work hard for less money than the competitors were. Now, the new business likely has debt, right? They don't have the money in the bank. And so they're working hard for less money. Meanwhile, the competitors see that they're losing sales. And guess what? They've paid off their debts. They have money in the bank. They're much stronger businesses. So who can last longer competing? Well, it's the established players. And that's why so many new businesses end up failing, right? Because when they start to hurt the competition, the competition responds and the competition can outlast because they're established. If you were to start, say, a new franchise, you get the products and the systems and the services. That's what the franchise company is telling you that you're going to get, but you still don't have the customers. And so same thing applies. When you get into the market and you start hurting other people and taking their customers, they're going to respond right? And again, the more established players are the stronger ones. If you buy an existing business, you get the customers, you get the product and service and the system to execute properly. You also get employees who know what they're doing because they've been doing it over and over again. And if you think about our fictitious town with four dry cleaners, if we buy one of them, the other people are going to notice that we bought one of the dry cleaners. But if we don't rock the boat, they're not likely to rock the boat because if they're making money, why would they want to work for less, right? And so I see it time and time again, where people will have new ideas, new businesses, they'll have a bunch of bravado and energy to get started. And then the resources just aren't there to carry them to that point. We're all familiar with that break-even analysis that people do when they're trying to plan a business where the overhead costs cause them to lose money every month while they try to get enough customers to break even and then hopefully start to make money. When you start a business, you don't know for sure where that break-even point is. And then even once you hit it, you then have to earn profits and backfill all that money you lost before you really make money. But when you buy a business, you might have a huge outlay on day one, but right from day number two, you're going to make profit because the business you bought was a profitable business. And so that's why I tell people it's easier, safer, cheaper, less risky to buy something that's already working 
than to try to create something on your own. And for people who don't believe me, I then further, you know, look at this example. Those large corporations, those big publicly traded multinational companies, it's very rare that you hear of them starting new businesses. They're almost always in the news acquiring someone else. And that's because the people that manage those businesses have all of that money entrusted to them by the shareholders. And they always have to prove that they're taking the best care of that money they can. And so if they invested in something that's already profitable, they can show that they're mitigating risk. And all I do is say to people that they should treat their same money with the same kind of care. Now, the second part of your question was about consultants wanting to sell. Now, here's the challenge for consultants. It's the same kind of challenge that exists for contractors and any kind of person that provides professional direct service. There's two types of goodwill in the world of business. There's personal goodwill and there's company goodwill. So if people are coming to your consulting business because they want to hire you and they will only accept you because you are the expert, then you're going to have a challenge building a business that's saleable. Okay. So for me in my own business, for example, I face this challenge because people hear me on podcasts, they watch my YouTube videos and they want to do business with me. They want me to help them. So the way that I leverage myself to grow a business is through my online courses and writing books and things like that so that I can reach more people and help more people without spending any more of my time. But for me to really get to a level where I would build a business that could be sold, I would have to get to the point where people were contacting my company and they were happy doing business with someone else. So I would have to have my processes formalized in such a way that I could actually teach someone else how to do what I do. So if you think about, you know, a restaurant, the chef opens the restaurant, maybe comes up with the recipes and they create all that, but they're able to teach other people how to put those recipes together. And as far as the customers are concerned, when they come in the door, they don't really care who made the meal as long as it's great, right? And so someone who's in a consulting practice that they want to turn into a saleable business has to be able to create systems and processes so that other people can do the work. And then number one, you can grow. And once you've grown the business and you have those other people doing the work, then someone else can actually see that they'll be able to purchase the business and keep those other people working, that you're not required to be there anymore. Without that corporate or business goodwill in place, if you sold your business, you would become one of the assets. And this happens a lot in the world of advertising, accounting firms, law practices, these types of things where the buyer comes along and says, yeah, I'll buy your business, but you're going to have to stay here and work here for the next five years. And these are the targets you're going to have to hit. And these are the deliverables we expect of you. And they'll usually hold back some portion of the purchase price until all those targets are met. It sounds like that person essentially becomes an employee again. In a way. Exactly. Yeah. They essentially sell themselves, you know, to the buyer. And the buyer, you know, if you think about it this way, the buyer is gambling that in the time period the seller remains, that the buyer will be able to get the goodwill to transfer from the seller to them. So think about like a dentist, right? A dentist who's been practicing for a long time. People come in. If the dentist suddenly changed, some of the customers may not like the new person and they might go away. So to mitigate that risk, what the buyer does is he says, I'll buy the dental practice, but I want you to stay here for two years. 
And I want you to personally introduce me to everybody every day as they come in. And so what ends up happening is the customer comes in, sees the familiar dentist, and then the dentist says, hey, you know, this is Joe, the new person. They're going to take care of your cavity today. He's a really great guy. You're going to love him. And so you try to transfer the goodwill from the old owner to the new owner. And this is a very long process. It's painful. Everyone dreams of selling the business and leaving, you know, maybe staying for a little transition period. But if the business doesn't have business goodwill, if people aren't doing business with your company, if they're just doing it with you, then it really, you know, puts shackles on you as far as your options when it comes time to sell. And so if selling your consulting practice is one of the things you want to do, today's the day you start by implementing processes, procedures, and systems so that you can actually start to get other people to do what you're doing. Now available on Amazon, management consultant and author Christy Lindor shares career secrets based on 15 years of experience working at top firms in a new book called The Misi Muse. 100 plus selected practices, unwritten rules, and habits of great consultants. The Misi Muse provides insights, stories, and strategies on the unwritten rules of the consulting profession. Christy conducted research and connected with 50 plus industry titans across 27 professional service organizations on what makes a great consultant. For book reviews, tour dates, and more info, go to www.mecmuse.us. Well, I'm going to pivot, you know, mm-hmm. for the last leg of today's show, just to hear some fun facts in this space because this is just this has just been really helpful just to to hear and be educated here so one fun fact i'd love to know like what are some of the most common businesses that you see are being sold today the most common mainstay businesses that get sold that people are after are businesses that can be that family-run business so you know the businesses you see all over the place the car washes the tire shops the corner stores the gas stations There's a ton of these still changing hands all the time. But what's happening more and more is I'm seeing more of these online type businesses. So people who are operating a business and delivering service to a clientele around the world. I did an evaluation actually last month for a company that sells a certain category of product. And, you know, they've got, they're the masters of that product. There's 300 varieties you can buy on their website and they deliver to people all around the world and businesses go up for sale. You know, everyone imagines that they go up for sale when someone wants to retire, but the reality is that businesses go up for sale when there's a pressing personal need on the part of the seller. These small Main Street businesses that I'm talking about, they don't sell for very high multiples. They don't sell for enormous amounts of money. And so nobody really sells them to cash out the way, you know, these you know, home run internet entrepreneurs do in Silicon Valley. And when people find out just what their business may actually be worth, most of them will not want to sell. They'll say, geez, you know, if I just owned it for the next couple of years, I'd get the same money anyway. So what does make them want to sell is when they have a pressing personal concern. So the top reasons are burnout and boredom, right? Divorce, relocation, poor health, and retirement is one of the top five as well. So Four of the five top reasons that businesses go up for sale are actually not planned for. And so this is another reason why I'm always telling people, you have to run your business every day as though it may have to be for sale. 
And so you want to run it well and you want to run it for maximum profit because the price ultimately is based on the cash flow. So the online businesses, the reason why I'm seeing more of them is because it's been about 10 years since a lot of people really have had access to great internet connectivity. And so it's been about 10 years since a lot of these online entrepreneurs have actually been building and running successful businesses that earn money in the small business sense. So businesses that are earning people 50, 100, 150, 200 grand a year. And so since it's been about 10 years, now we're starting to run in more and more to these personal things happening in these people's lives that are causing them to have to sell their businesses. And so given that, what about the hardest businesses to sell? I know you mentioned family-run businesses and then online businesses are on the rise and you've given the, the reasons. What's a hard business to sell these days? A hard business is one that's full of dead capital. So dead capital is money that's been invested, which earns no return. And it's a sad story because oftentimes the business owners don't realize this until they run into someone like me who shows them. So I had a conversation on the phone this morning with a guy and he has a business in a small town and he put a couple hundred thousand dollars down to acquire the business and he runs it with employees and he's able to pay his loans that he took on to buy the business. But then there's nothing left after that. And when we look at small businesses that are family run, these these main street businesses, one of the measures of cash flow that we use is called seller's discretionary earnings. And that's the total amount of money available to an owner manager that works full time. So it's a combination of their wage and the profit of the company. Okay. So it's all the money available to them. And I always tell my buyers that they need to get three things out of that discretionary cash flow. Number one, they need to take home a paycheck to pay the bills, feed the kids, all that stuff. Right. Number two, they have to service debt. So if they borrowed money to buy the business, they got to pay the bank. And the last one, the one that buyers so often forget about is they need to get a return on and a return of the initial capital that they put in, their cash that they put in. And so when you tie up a bunch of money in a business and it's able to pay wages and pay the bank, but it's not able to pay back your investment, then what you've literally done is put money into something and the money's not earning a return. And so when buyers look at a situation like that, they realize, hey, if I bought this business, I'd be basically be buying myself a job. I might be buying myself, you know, an income and a lifestyle, but I'm not going to be able to get anything back on the money I'm putting down. And so that's hard. And what it usually takes is it takes either someone who is so enamored with the lifestyle that they want to go for it anyway, or it's someone who literally has no choice but to buy themselves a job if they want to have an income. And so people typically who will buy a job because they don't have a choice would be, for example, your new immigrants, right? Maybe they suffer a language barrier, or maybe they have a professional certification in another country, but they can't use that certification in their new home, their new home country. So they'll be so desperate to have an income that they'll buy one of these businesses where they basically work to earn a wage, but they'll never get their investment back. And then the other group would be people who fall in love with a certain lifestyle. And, you know, these are the people from the big city who buy the bed and breakfast by the seashore, right? Because they have this romantic notion of, of being an innkeeper, you know, that Bob Newhart show kind of thing. But the reality is, unless you have, you know, 15 to 20 rooms in your bed and breakfast, 
you're likely never going to earn yourself a real rate of return. So in terms of if people are hearing this and they want to do business with you or run things by you, do you do business transactions outside of Canada? Yeah, I do. I do them all over the world. In fact, in 2017, more than half of my revenue from clients came from outside of Canada. So my biggest markets are Texas, California, and Toronto. Um, mm, in that order. And I also have clients in the UK. I've worked with people in Australia, New Zealand. So basically, a lot of my clients come to me because of the books I've written and because of my YouTube channel. And being that they're in English, I hear from people in English-speaking languages, English-speaking countries from all over the world. And really, what I take people through is I take them through the analysis and the negotiation. And then when we get to the part where the paperwork, tax planning, legal structure, all that stuff has to be done, then basically I guide people with their CPA and their attorney. So I've got a client right now actually in Florida who's moving forward with an acquisition. And part of what I did is I gave him a list of 20 things for him to talk to his CPA about because he wanted to interview a couple of CPAs and decide which one he wanted. And I said, here are the things you want to talk with them about to test their knowledge. Because just like any professional, you know, doctors, for example, doctors in a given state may all have the same medical license, but some of them are pediatricians and some of them are heart surgeons, right? So they have different areas of specialty. And when you talk about CPAs, you know, there are CPAs who've done small business transactions before and help people through due diligence. And there are CPAs who largely do tax returns. So you want to make sure that you're hiring a professional who has experience in the exact field that you need them to do so that you can get the best advice that you can. Same thing with attorneys. Well, this is such a fascinating conversation. I feel like I can ask you so many questions, <laughs> but you know, one last question for you would be any, what advice would you give a consultant that's, you know, hearing this information and starting to plan for 2018, maybe they want to either buy a business or they may even know they may have a family member or, you know, have a family business that they're thinking that they need to, you know, prepare to be sold. Is it any kind of last remarks, David? Yeah. I mean, come on over to my site, davidcbarnett.com, and you'll you'll be able to find my online courses and my in particular my YouTube channel has 250 videos and every video is about buying, selling, managing, or financing a business. And they're all videos that have been created based on questions submitted by people out there who have these concerns and questions. So people can learn a ton just by going through all that content. And then if they want to work with me directly, they can engage with me. But the as far as people doing consulting, one of the things that I have discovered is that it's very easy for someone to decide, hey, I'm going to work on an hourly rate, right? And we see this a lot in many different professions. And the reason why it's risky is because it means that as a consultant, you're kind of capping your ability to earn money because you're limiting yourself to how many hours you can invest in your client's files. And then from the customer's point of view, it's also risky because they imagine that it's going to take you twice as long to do what they think, you know, or twice as long as what they think it's going to take. And so they're worried that they're you know, $1,000 bill is going to end up being a $2,500 bill. And so in my practice, I work with a lot of my sellers or small business owners and my buyers, you know, a lot of them don't have a lot of experience dealing with consulting professionals. They typically are coming from a background of being an employee or they're new to the country, et cetera. And so 
they're worried that they're going to hire me for a few hours and end up getting having to pay a thousand dollars. So as much as I can, I create what I call a menu. So I package my services into these bundles like a product, and then they have fixed prices. So I can tell that buyer who's never engaged someone like me before, I can say, look, you're looking at this business. You're worried about what might be under the hood. You want someone to look at the numbers with you to give you an estimate of what it's really worth and what kind of terms would be reasonable by this business. What you need is a buyer insight analysis. This is what I do, this whole list of things, and here's the price. And so they can actually be confident and make a decision based on that price without having to be worried that it's going to end up costing far more than they thought. And I can price that service knowing how long it usually takes me to do it. And if I can do things a little bit quicker, because maybe, you know, maybe Christy, it's the 25th car wash I've analyzed and I can do it rather quickly, then it means I can earn a little bit more money than I might normally as well. Well, this is such a fantastic, very intriguing conversation, David, I, I must admit. And go-getters, what we'll do, we'll, we'll definitely put links to David's YouTube channel and his blog so you can check it out. But David, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, Christy, I've had a blast. Thanks for inviting me on. And I just, I want to encourage all your listeners because there is nothing more satisfying than knowing that you're making your own way in the world and that you're the one who is doing the actions and you're the one that's going to benefit from the fruit of those labor. You know, employees, they're very dependent. They've got one source of income. And as soon as you get into business for yourself, no matter how you manage to do it, all of a sudden you have all these different sources of income, all of your customers. It actually means that your existence is less risky than that of an employee. I think anyone who has the ability should be in business. That concludes uh, today's show. I'd like to again thank David for being a guest on the Misi Mise Unplugged. And thank you, my go-getters, for tuning in. This is Christy Lindor signing out for the Misi Muse Unplugged pop-up podcast. Here's to your journey to greatness. Tune in every Friday for a new episode syndicated on iTunes, Google Play Music, and many more. Visit www.misimuse.com for more information.